I'm glad you're joining us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. I'm host Carrie Freeman, coming to you from Atlanta in July of 2022. Today, we're going to be talking about the politics of protecting coastal ecosystems with a histor historic success story here in Georgia from Cumberland Island up through Tybee Island. Former Georgia Congressperson Dr. Paul Bolster is here to tell us the political lessons of his new book, Saving the Georgia Coast, a political history of the Coastal Marshlands Protection Act. Let me tell you a bit about the book and him first. In Saving the Georgia Coast, author Paul Bolster narrates the politics of the last 50 years and brings to life the political leaders and the coalition of advocates who led Georgia to pass the most comprehensive protection of marshlands along the Atlantic seaboard. It's called the Coastal Marshlands Protection Act in 1970. Bolster's account also reviews state policy towards the Georgia coast today. Current demands on the coastal environment are different from decades past, including spaceports and sea rise from climate change, but the political pressures to generate new wealth and new jobs or to perch a home on the edge of the sea are no different than 50 years ago. Saving the Georgia coast spotlights the past and present decisions needed to balance human desires with the limits of what nature has to offer. Saving the Georgia Coast is published with UGA Press and is a winner of several awards so far. The Philip Reed Memorial Award from the Southern Environmental Law Center, as well as an award for excellence in documenting Georgia's history from the Georgia Historical Records Advisory Council. Uh, he talks more about the book on his website, paulbolster.com, and that's B-O-L-S-T-E-R for his last name. Our guest is the book's author, Dr. Paul Bolster. He's a former member of the Georgia House of Representatives. Elected in 1974, he served as he served a diverse Atlanta district for 12 years until 1986. He's currently a, his, a historian, a freelance writer, and a speaker who lives in Atlanta. Dr. Bolster holds a PhD in history from the University of Georgia and holds a law degree from Georgia State University College of Law. He taught American history at Clark Atlanta University for 14 years. He also ran a health care for the homeless program in Atlanta for the St. Joseph Health System and has been a tireless advocate for affordable housing. That's so important. He founded the Georgia Supportive Housing Association and directed it for five years. In addition to years of community involvement, Dr. Bolster served three years on Governor Nathan Deal's Council on Criminal Justice Reform. That's quite uh, quite a career and, and still going. Welcome, Dr. Bolster. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. I was so excited about this book because the Georgia coast is one of my favorite nat natural places, and, I, and I've been lucky to travel the world. I, I love the marsh grasses and the gorgeous mossy live oak trees and the seabirds. I think it's because I grew up along the Atlantic coast of Florida, and then my grandparents and my aunt and uncle live in North Florida, which has a similar geography. So I highly identify with the sights and sounds of the Georgia coast, like the rattling of the cicadas. <laughs> but and, and your book notes that creating an appreciation for a sense of place was central to the protection of the coast. So I was wondering, what's your connection with this special place that got you interested in writing the story of how it came to be legally protected? Well, that's that's a good question. I, uh, for my wife and I had a house on Tybee, a vacation kind of oh, rental right. house that we had for about 15 years. And I uh, bought two kayaks and decided I'd uh, paddle across the uh, back river and out into the marsh. And there's a cut that goes through. And so you can go all the way down the backside of uh, 
of Tybee Island if you manage the the, uh, the tide correctly. And I just I just loved it. And I guess the biggest question is kind of the question the readers might have is how did all this kind of end up in a natural state? Why wasn't there big houses and big boats on it uh, on Little Tybee Island? So Little right. Tybee Island is the is the focus of the early uh, early efforts to try to protect the coast. Yeah. And I know early on in your Saving the Georgia Coast book, you explain the reasons why the Georgia coastal area, at least the barrier islands, got spared in the 19th and 20th centuries from a lot of the destructive logging and industrial activities that were practiced inland. And it was it, it seemed to be largely because all the wealthy industrialists wanted to vacation along the Georgia coast and love the natural scenery. So it, uh, is that right? It was kind of a somewhat selfish motivation in some sense on their part, but it, it turned out to be important for everyone if, if that's the case. Yeah, Georgia's history during the kind of the Gilded Age, which is the 1890s when huge industrial wealth was created in the country, uh, the coast was very attractive to some very wealthy people. And so they bought up a lot of the islands. Uh, at one time on Jekyll, there was uh, the Millionaires Club was there, uh, which had a number of millionaires in it. And then other millionaires bought up other islands along the coast. So that for a very long period of time, uh, the coast was very exclusively used uh, for, uh, for their entertainment. Right. And you hear about that when you go like to the, I've been lucky to go to the Jekyll Island Resort, you know, in that historic part of Jekyll Island. And you kind of see about the history of that and that it, yeah, was very kind of exclusionary um, and posh at the time. But now I like that everyone can, <laughs> can go to the resort. Um, and so, you know, it's nice that they at least appreciated uh, the natural scenery um, and even if they were doing it for themselves initially, it really has helped us all. Now, how did it go from like an influential group of people forming a connection to the coastal landscape in the late 1800s and early 1900s to developing into a coalition of all different types of people to pass a Marshland Protection Act in 1970? Well, in the late 60s, the, the, the wealthy folks that owned some of those islands realized that there was gonna be challenges to their ownership, uh, either through action by the state legislature, confiscation, parks, other people were talking about how it could be used differently. I already had the example of Hilton Head being uh, redeveloped. Uh, uh, yes. and, and so there was some concern on their part that maybe they needed to take some action. Um, and the, the most critical part of it was that stimulated this political movement was that uh, Kerr McGee, which was a large extraction company out of, uh, out of Oklahoma, I think, but very active in putting all of the oil derricks into the, into the Gulf Coast. They managed to buy Little Tybee Island and another island, and they uh, had some geologists tell them there was phosphate under it. So they wanted, they wanted to tear the top off of it and get oh, no. the phosphate underneath, which would have been virtually the destruction of the coast. Right, because it would have affected more than just that one island, right? Because of all the disruption and the sediments and everything. Yeah, the, proce the, the processing of phosphate is a very uh, dirty kind of business. Uh, yeah. They were going to wash it after they dug it up and they were gonna take the, the affluent that was left from the washing and pump it out in the ocean oh, no. uh, three miles. And then the scientists all were very careful about telling them what the currents were, that all that 
uh, off, uh, you know, dangerous affluent would come back on the coast all the way down through the whole coast. Uh, there's only one place left in the country and it's very, very toxic where phosphate is actually uh, mined today. Uh, and uh, so the phosphate would have been a destruction. Mining that on the coast would have been a destruction of the coast. Oh my gosh. So then how did, um, how did, so that maybe was the impetus for like, okay, we need to actually get some formal protections and not just have private ownership of this and hope that these people will protect it. So then who got together and, and how did they convince a, um, the state legislature to do a coastal marshland protection act? Well, the first phase of it all was to try to stop the mining. And right. so that really brought different organizations together. And there was a large number of brand new organizations that had been formed that included the Georgia Conservancy, uh, some students at uh, UGA or, or organized the chapter of the Sierra Club. Uh, there was uh, uh, the, 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 the other background of this is the scientists that were on Sapelo Island from UGA, the UGA Marine Institute. Uh, they had done research for 15 years on the value of the marsh. Great. So there was a foundation, an academic foundation for the value of what the marsh uh, stood for rather than just uh, you know wasteland, which a lot of people thought it was. So a lot of organizations come together. Uh, they got leadership from a great uh, legislator out of Columbus. He was a lawyer uh, out of Brunswick, excuse me. Uh, he uh, His family was uh, sort of, the very business leadership. His father owned the bank, the bank there. His father was Mr. Everything in, in Brunswick and he was in the legislature, but he believed that this uh, mining thing would, would, would kill the coast. And so despite, and that's one of the ingredients of most political movements is you gotta have a courageous legislator because when he started doing that and taking positions on that, that would have probably meant at that time he might've gotten beat. Uh, in the in his legislative uh, term, so courageous legislators, organizations, uh, the research from scientists, uh, all of those things kind of came together and supported a movement that uh, that then managed to impact the legislature. And so, because this isn't just something that then protected that um, Tybee Island, it actually protect. Does it protect the entire Georgia coast? Right, all the barrier islands. Right. I mean, that's it, a very it, widespread um, ah, I mean, that's fantastic. So the Kermagee got stopped by Lester Maddox, of all things. And that's uh, the governor that, at the uh, time. That, yeah, they had public hearings. Large numbers of people came out, told incredible stories. Nobody seemed to want it. And finally, and also he did an environmental impact study before the federal government even required them. Wow. Uh, University of Georgia did a 300-page uh, environmental impact study right. on this decision about the mine. So a lot of the foundation of how we go about environmental discussions of policy now were really created during that time period. Uh, even And it's, it, it's an interesting time period because it's when Georgia was doing this, there was no federal law on this. Right, the, like the, the notion of an environmental impact statement to talk of, as like a precautionary principle before you act on something. Yeah, there was no EPA. Uh, wow. at the time. Uh, so this was all actually, there was actually no law that seemed to be logical way to stop Kerr-McGee. So when they stopped it through denying a lease on that land, uh, they had applied for a lease on, uh, on uh, 22,000 acres of land that included the marsh and uh, most of the Wausau Sound. 
uh, and three miles out to the ocean. Well, when that didn't happen, then people said, well, how do we keep this from happening again? How do we regulate what goes on on the coast? And that's where Reed Harris became the person that put together this uh, sort of uh, a cutting edge piece of legislation protecting the whole coast. That's so awesome. Now, it seems today that environmental protection is more associated with leftist politics, while those on the political right seem to think that habitat and species protection in some cases is counterproductive to creating human jobs or an economic notion of, you know, quote unquote progress. But would you say that the environmental protections offered in Georgia's Coastal Marshland Protection Act are largely appreciated as a smart decision by most people across the political spectrum in Georgia? Like you can look back on that and say like, wow, we think this was a, we're glad this happened, that it's not really a partisan issue maybe? Yeah, I think today the legislature has had a number of sort of indirect ways which they've confirmed the decision that was made 50 years ago. And the decision was, we're going to use this for tourism. Uh, okay. We're going to use this resource for, uh, uh, for, for, uh, for residential use, but not, but not, not much going to preserve the coast. Uh, yeah. And we're not going to use it for heavy industry. Right. And, and oh, the other thing is you're going to use it for fisheries. So we, Georgia would, do lots of things and he has recently to try to improve the oyster industry, improve the shrimping industry, support the fishing industries and the tourism. That was what they decided 50 years ago. I think that's still the, basically the heart of what George's approach to the coast is today. Yeah, so then they appreciate that and that those are the kinds of things they've developed um, and it is a beautiful place to, I mean, I, that's what I've mostly done is just vacation there, whether it's at Cumberland Island or near Sapelo or in Savannah and different places. And I mean, yeah, it is, it, it is really gorgeous. And there's so many Airbnbs and like just interesting resorts and so many places to kayak. <laughs> and um, yeah, it, it's, it's gorgeous. And so um, it, it's much prettier. I mean, I'm from South Florida, but to me, that doesn't compare to the beauty of, of the Georgia coast um, because a lot of South Florida has been developed so much, you know, and it's kind of tacky with all the hotels and everything. I, and so, I mean, to me, the Georgia coast is just this treasure. I mean, I just think it's fantastic. And, and that was a decision that people made. They made yeah. the decision they weren't going to be like the high rise coast of Florida yes. uh, and that they were going to use this in a different way as I said, for tourism and for fisheries to make sure that the fishing industry survived. And th that's why the marsh is so important ecologically to the fish life in the ocean. That's what the scientists proved uh, in those years on the Marine Science Center was that the nutrients that came from the marsh and the little tiny animals that got eaten yeah. by the big ones that got eaten by the bigger ones, they were the sustaining force behind most of the sea life off the coast. Right. Like if you think you're going to have all these chemicals in the water and then we're going to have a thriving ecosystem with a diverse <laughs> grouping of all kinds of marine life, that's not going to happen. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. if you're just joining us on Radio Free Georgia, this is In Tune to Nature. And I'm host Carrie Freeman talking with historian and former Georgia congressperson, Dr. Paul Bolster, about his award winning book with UGA Press called Saving the Georgia Coast, a political history of the Coastal Marshlands Protection Act. More about the book is found on his website, paulbolster.com. 
Dr. Bolster, what are some of the issues that threaten coastal habitats in Georgia today? I, obviously, climate change and sea level rise would be an obvious one because it's such a lowland area. And are people productively mobilizing political power to address these environmental threats today? Well, there are lots of organizations out there now. Uh, yeah. The uh, in in the first appendix in my book, I listed twenty five different yeah, organizations. I love that. Uh, you could get involved in today, uh, give your money, go on some of the tours that they have, go to their conferences that they have. Uh, but, you know, the most important thing people could do if you're interested in this is to is to get to know your local legislator, you mm -hmm. know, call them up, go to their meetings, sure. try to talk to him or her <laughs> and uh, and uh, and get that personal relationship going. Because they, they oftentimes need advice from people that can go out and do research for them and their feelings can be expressed in the legislative process. Uh, so there are lots of organizations that could help keep you informed so that you can then uh, develop a relationship with the local legislator. The, the, the key to passing this legislation back then was all the public hearings that they had and yeah. the study committees that they had. And I think that's a little different than it is today, how the legislature's operating. There's not as many opportunities for people, for scientists, for people that live on the coast to come forward and talk about what they, their hopes and dreams are for, uh, for that part of the country. So uh, the, it's, it's amazing how democratically based the movement was, uh, democratic in a small d, Yeah, because uh, yeah. actually it's a very bipartisan effort. It was the way uh, things are supposed to work. Yeah, there was no partisan differences over this legislation. Yeah, because um, I mean, so, so many times now with the, it, like, I mean, I certainly have done a lot of comments on government sites for this and that different environmental issue, um, or like they'll have public hearings, but sometimes people feel like it's just, um, I don't know, lip service, or then they're not going to, they don't care what people say, they're going to just do whatever they want to do anyway, but they're just act, they're going through the motions of some kind of democratic process. So, but it's nice to hear, at least in <laughs> in 1970 or 1969, when around when this Coastal Marshland Protection Act, they were listening to the citizens and the scientists when they were saying how special this area is. Well, um, one of the things that might have been different in Georgia politics, and I this is a much more academic discussion, but uh, is that the legislature was clearly in charge of state policy. Lester Maddox had been chosen by the legislature. You'll have to read that part of why that was the case back then. So the legislature was probably at the height of its power and individual legislators had a whole lot to say about what the leadership was going to do. Uh, now, it seems to me that there's less, like when I was in the legislature, I had a little blue pad on my desk. And when a bill came up, uh, when a bill came up, I uh, could scribble out an amendment, take it down to the clerk, and they'd have to vote on that amendment. Wow. Now they don't let that happen. <laughs> it's all kind of more regulated by the rules committee as to where you can uh, can ask people to what you can ask people to vote on. So do you feel like some of the lessons because you have some lessons in the in the conclusion of your book, which I thought was really useful. Um, do you think some of those lessons could still apply today? Some of the lessons I, we learned like and which ones? I do think that's the case that the study committees, you know, if you if, if uh, you can talk your legislator into having a study committee on something where the expertise comes to bear on the issue, uh, if there could be more public hearings uh, so that the public can actually speak out. There were, I think, nine public hearings 
that I talked about in this book that happened either stopping the mining or passing the legislation. That's a lot of public input yeah. that made a difference. Yeah. Um, and I, that kind of goes along with my, uh, my last question, which is um, for listeners who are interested in ecosystem protection, what advice do you give them in today's polarized political environment for getting environmental protection laws passed? Well, first of all, it, it, it shouldn't be uh, partisan. And that's something that happened yeah. in the mid 70s after this period of time that, uh, that I'm talking about. Uh, where where it became more of a political well actually that's I'm wrong about that the seven the 70s was a time when legislation passed in a bi bipartisan way uh, yeah, like the Endangered I mean, Species Act and the Clean Water Act and so right. many, so many things that, that are the saving grace today very gold very Goldwater voted for all that yeah and Nixon and different like so it was like yeah, it was very different back. This was when I was born, you know, all this was happening. But then it seems like as I've grown up, it's been I've grown up in a very partisan world. <laughs> so now I think these issues ought to be equally uh, argued with yes. Republicans or Democrats. Uh, there is no reason why the Re Republican Party in the state of Georgia wouldn't be interested. Actually, when some resolutions passed on the coast recently, uh, all the Republicans and all the Democrats signed on to the to the resolution. Uh, that was a resolution in the House to uh, to stop them from doing testing for uh, for uh, oil off the coast. Uh, so they all end up agreeing. I think there's a lot of agreement at the local level about what should happen and and need to have folks be able to translate that uh, into the minds of some of the, all the legislators. Yeah, and so as you mentioned, if if you think if everybody gets to know um, the congressperson, their senator and their House of Representatives uh, congressperson, and form some kind of relationship there, then they can speak to them about how much they care about various um, environmental issues, whether it's river protection or climate change or habitat protection or something. Right. We, we have a, a very large House of Representatives. It has 180 members. The advantage of that is it gives you a chance to get to know your member. And right. most of the political action that people do should go through the person you vote for. Yeah. That's the place to start. Not the guy somewhere else who happens to head a committee, but your person who then can talk to that person that heads the committee somewhere else. And I do think most of us are so focused on our federal congressional representatives, and that's what's talked about on the national news, of course, all the time. So then we don't tend to focus as much on what's happening in our own House of Representatives at the state level, uh, yeah. where actually we could have more influence, like you're saying. Right. And it's unfortunate that the press doesn't cover it as much. Uh, yeah. Back when I was writing, the reason I could write the book was that there were four or five reporters that were daily following the legislation at the Capitol. Yeah. Well, you don't get that. When I talked to them recently, they didn't know any environmental reporters that are working for the AJC. So uh, this WABE has a, has a reporter that follows that beat, but yeah, the press Sanders. coverage of these local issues is not nearly the same as it used to be. Yeah, that's a shame. I'm a, as a media professor, I definitely don't like to see um, yeah, to decline in journalism and especially environmental journalism. But we do have a society of professional journalists that help support um, 
environmental journalism. And also shout out to the scientists that you mentioned from University of Georgia, which is uh, a place both of us have gotten our some of our graduate degrees for the work that they did over the years, you know, to show why it is vital to um, save habitats and help us understand ecosystems. The couple of years that I spent recently down at the Capitol as a as a legislative aide, um, I found that the legislators didn't know the scientists very well. Yeah, there were scientists that knew a lot about the coast, and they managed to pass a new Shore Protection Act down there without talking to any of those scientists. So that that's a, a gap, I think, in the communication between our scientists and the the people that are making policy. Right. I think that at the end of your book, you say, listen to the scientists. So (laughs) So we'll talk about the end of your book, but it's also the end of our show. And I want to thank you, Paul Bolster, for being with us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. And thanks for writing this book to help inspire productive political policymaking that protects wilderness areas. Well, thanks very much for having me. I'd love to talk about this anytime, anywhere. (laughs) Okay. Take care. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to In Tune to Nature, broadcasting every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, online at wrfg.org and on Atlanta radio station 89.3 FM. We post action items, news, and podcasts on the show's website, facebook.com, backslash In Tune to Nature. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of WRFG, its board staff, or volunteers. I'm one of those volunteers. I'm host Carrie Freeman asking you, to please support independent non-commercial media like Radio Free Georgia. And remember to take care of yourself and others, including other species like those found along our coastal ecosystems. Thank you for listening. Cheers.